historically. You have to look what else is happening in their life. What else happened in Smithson? Do we owe the world complete transparency to our lives as artists? And how do you draw that line as to what's invasive? My name is Greg Lindquist. I'm an artist and writer and professor. Um, my work deals with issues of ecology through landscape painting and installation, um, also issues of environmental justice. But my interest in earthworks has been pretty long term, the last probably 20 years or so. And so I encountered Suzanne's seminal work on earthworks quite a while before we were colleagues at Bergen Community College for about a decade. Also, I'm really interested in Smithson's reclamation projects of mines that were unrealized and the relationship that they had with my father's work as a marine biologist creating artificial reefs out of boxcars to create habitats for fish to repopulate during the depopulation of fish in the 1980s and early 1990s. So I'm thrilled to be here with you, Suzanne, and talk about this book and also be one of the first people to talk about the book. And I just want to say congratulations on this book and all of your hard work to get it out there. Well, let me just say thank you, Greg, for interrogating me, for being with me in this conversation. Uh, I know we met, uh, I was just thinking, we met decades ago at the Rubin Museum at a meeting of the American That's section right. of the International Association of Art Critics, where you tapped my shoulder behind me and said, hey, you're the author of Earthworks, aren't you? <laughs> <laughs> and I was, you know, whoa. So glad to be recognized. Let's be friends. <laughs> yeah, and then you generously came out to Governor's Island and saw the painting installation I did that Omar Lopez Chahoud curated into No One Is an Island that was with Melissa Levin at LMCC space out there. Um, and we had a great conversation about the Hudson River School and Thanatopsis and Earthworks. Yeah, so, okay, so I am a longstanding, I have to say, art critic. Uh, first in the San Francisco Bay Area, I was born in Berkeley and uh, wrote for all, all sorts of publications, was the art forum correspondent for a few years. Then I moved to New York for my doctorate, continued to write for Art Forum, Art in America, various other places, became a professor at Bergen Community College, and then got interested in, in extending my work on Smithson into this book which in the course of it became uh, very biographical. And in the course of it, I discovered things I didn't even, had no idea I would discover. I mean, it's news to me too. That's, I'm fascinated myself. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's not as if I set out to write X, Y, and Z. I discovered X, Y, and Z in the act of uh, researching and writing it. And then I was able to retire and had to be able to finish this book. So uh, glad to see it will soon be in my and everyone's hands. I also forgot that probably our previous collaboration was when you contributed to the Social Ecologies editorial at the Brooklyn Rail in 2015, where I did an editorial about the relationship between art and ecology, especially the sociological dimension of ecology. And you wrote a great piece. I think you had just come from Venice. Oh, oh, that's right. I mean, one of my interests for years has been the relationship between artists' responses to environmental degradation and, and now climate change. So that's a whole other area I've worked on for a great many years, but in the last few have diverted from that because I wanted to uh, get this material out and look in this material about Smithson. And that's definitely something I'd like to bring up. This question about Smithson's relationship to environmentalism, because you've spent so much time with his writing and with his work, do you find definitive evidence to support that if he would have kept working, that he would have somehow aligned himself with the mainstream environmental movements that were kind of picking up steam as he tragically died at 35? Well, yes and no. You know, he ridiculed the environmentalists. Exactly. Because he was against idealism. He was against romanticism of nature. What he saw was not springtime. What he saw in nature was barren winter. What he saw was uh, not the dynamism of volcanoes exploding, but the destruction of volcanoes exploding. 
can I just interject for a moment? Because you're absolutely right. And in like Tour of the Monuments of Passaic, New Jersey, we just read it a few days ago in my Pratt Art Since the 60s class. And a student pointed out the same thing that careful readers point out is for all of his rejection of idealization of the landscape through some mode like romanticism, you know, that he would find probably retardaire. He romanticized the industrial scape. Would you agree with that? No, I don't, I don't. I don't think he romanticized it. I think he felt an affiliation with it. Mm-hmm. I mean, he said the fundamental property of steel is rust. That isn't romanticizing it. And even in his trip through his unacknowledged birthplace, Passaic, he was derogatory about Passaic as a kind of emotionally empty place. And of course, he ended up with the sandbox as a grave. I mean, he was definitely drawn to it. I mean, he wrote in this his Barrel Jetty essay how he took pleasure in the rusting, old, abandoned uh, oil refinery, you know, extraction mechanics that were abandoned there. One could think as your student did, that because he wrote about it, he was drawn to it. Well, maybe we could say he was drawn to it, but he was inversely drawn to it. Well, what about the camera cuts in Spiral Jetty, where it cuts back and forth between the earth-moving machinery and the dinosaurs? Would you say that's a romanticization of the industrial through the prehistoric or the geological? No, because... And listeners of this can find my article on Smithson's relation to dinosaurs on the Burlington Contemporary website. He's likening the earth movement equipment to dinosaurs because dinosaurs are a dead but extinct species, beings, which are still alive in imagination which is like a very important person to his early life, dead but still alive in memory or alive in thoughts. And that likening links the spiral jetty to that person, I mean, and to that experience. One could see externally, and maybe he even wanted it to be seen that way, that he was heroizing the earth-moving as grunting dinosaurs. But biographically, those dinosaurs, which he pictured pretty much throughout his artistic life, had a personal symbolism that was not related to industry uh, except in its degradation. Well, let's start with uh, your relationship with Smithson. I mean, you talk about in the Gratitudes chapter about that, it seems like pivotal moment when you received the collected writings of Smithson, the original version that was designed by Solowit and edited by Nancy Holt in your mailbox in 1979, which is a kind of funny date because that's the year I was born. And, (laughs) And then you talked about giving a lecture, but when did you first discover his work and what was your reaction, if you can recall it? Well, first of all, absolute awe at the radiant image by Gianfranco Giorgioni of the spiral jelly that were all over. I was a TA for Peter Seltz, the originally German emigre from Munich, who was the expert on German expressionism. Okay, and he was giving a course on 20th century sculpture. So I was one of the TAs in this big stadium seating in which uh, we had, you know, discussion sections. And then he, uh, being who he, he was and who we were, he told his cadre of TAs that we each should give a lecture. And, okay, what should I give a lecture on? Well, I just flipped open the books and there it was. So first of all, there was the visual attraction. But then when I began to read Smithson, which was then before that collected writings arrived. So, you know, so I had to, I go, went to the uh, art forum where he'd done most of it and other art magazines. When I began to read him, I think I grooved with the focus on mortality. He, He found myriad metaphors for mournfulness, mortality, a metaphysical uh, existence. 
I had recently experienced a significant uh, death of someone close to me, and this I, I related. I would both related and I was curious. Where did this come from? As I say in my prologue to this book, all right, it was fashionable to call museums tombs, to think that uh, society was radically changing, and the youth culture of the baby boomers, of which I was one, he wasn't, he was too early for that, but okay, are going to push away all the uh, signs of the establishment convention and make something reborn, okay, culturally reborn, fine. But of that milieu, Smithson was the uh, only one to actively, creatively meditate on death so much that it had to be more than a social reason, had to be a personal reason. That's what I was interested in. The title the Passions of Robert Smithson. I think you you addressed this in the introduction, but I thought maybe to pique your readers' interest, maybe you could just talk a little bit about the multi-layered, multivalent nature of that term. What what are what are you referring to by passions? Well, the I think socially uh, or linguistically most direct parallel that I'm riffing on is the passion of Christ. So that should key the reader, that there should be some little glimmer that we're making an analogy between the passion of Christ and the passions of Robert Smithson. We have a religious artist here, but who an artist who also, when was the passions of Christ? The passions of Christ, even though we think, you know, we can have passionate love, we can think passion as a positive characteristic, positive expression, the passions of Christ were in his death. So the other subliminal allusion is to agony. Smithson is experiencing passions of, it's not only related to Christ, but it's also related to pain and agony. But then we change it from passion of Christ or passion of, to passions, because I didn't want the book just to be, I mean, it's not just about his religious devotion or ambiguities. It also alludes to passion in the other sense, you know, sexual passion. And then, of course, the passion for making art. To stand in for the characteristics of Robert Smithson, who approached things more expressively than conceptually, as he has been designated, and as he wanted to be designated, to hide his emotional passions and keep them private. Mm -hmm. And that's an interesting question in kind of the decoding of what you've done here. You know, it raises the question, do you believe he was self-conscious about leaving a historical record of these hidden narratives, of these coded narratives? I do. If I can decode them simply by using what I call investigative artistry, I think he... He shifts continually between disguise and disclose, disclose and disguise. I mean, there are large areas where there's no disclosing because, in my belief, he used cryptology. And with cryptology, you need to know the key. There are many works, like there's a painting, Buried Angel. Buried Angel has three interesting aspects. It has an underground angel with full wings out. And it has a deep kind of cutaway of underground. In that deep cutaway are a number of letters that don't make words and numbers that go like from one to nine or various other numbers. And they're really confounding. I mean, some of them I have added up, as in numerology, they don't really add up to anything significant. That is one of, the, one of the images that I think will never be completely revealed. Will Shorts couldn't crack it? Will Shorts sends me to the American Cryptogram uh, Association, which did crack something else. But I'm hoping, I'm hoping that this study will inspire a graduate student who has a degree in computer science or something also, 
a graduate student, computer scientist, becoming uh, becoming an art historian to take up some of these uh, mysterious. Okay, but in that buried angel. Okay, so we have the underground angel with the full wings that the shows that the angel is not dead, but he's underground. He can't be seen. Okay, then we have all those letters and numbers that are undecipherable. And then we have the volcanic channel that has these kind of bulbous forms at the end that look like a scrotum and a, and a phallus that's spewing pink flume. Could they be like pimples too? I mean, you know, he was like, he had an acne face, right? Have you thought about that? The face has nothing to do. The face, we could say, is his own manifestation of the passions of Christ because it's bloody. You know, it's bloody because everyone uh, who I talked to who knew him, the first thing they said is Smithson was tall, gangly, and he had bloody pocked cheeks because he would scratch his acne. And and of course, he, he objected to Alice Neal painting that and and he told Alice he objected to Alice Neal not only painting with kind of vivid strokes his red cheeks but she put it against green which being its opposite you know its complement on the color wheel brings out the red so when she went to his studio then later she said Bob you objected to my painting your cheeks bloody red as they really were. But look at all this blood in these paintings, these paintings of Christ, only Christ, only in the crucifixion, the crucifixion and the Via Dolorosa. His paintings are not religious. They're not Christ scenes. They're only Christological death scenes. It's much more easy to sanitize them as, oh, they're religious. Well, if they're religious, fine. But the only extant ones are of Christ. He has one St. Michael and one little drawing of a Madonna. Where does his relationship with Christian symbolism come from? Was he an altar boy? I couldn't find that out. And he was Catholic, right? He was absolutely Catholic. He was baptized 21 days after he was born. Let me tell you a story about doing research. The number 38 became significant. His birth year. I was taking a train from Penn Station to Princeton to attend a conference on art and ecology. American artists in the 19th century response to environmental problems. All right. And when I got the train ticket at Penn Station, and the last numbers were 38, I thought, huh, this must have something to do with Smithson, but he was absolutely not interested in environmentalism, political environmentalism. He ridiculed it. He was not interested in ecology, per se. Okay, What's this about Smithson? Okay, when I got to Princeton, and I had a hotel because the conference was two days, as soon as I got into my room, I got a phone call. Oh, Miss Betker, this is Theodore. From Remember you called the church where Smithson uh, attended? I have for you the dates of his baptism, first communion, and confirmation. You think, whoa, <laughs> there it is. That's the 38. Wow. So, so wait, he would be 84 if he were alive today. Is that right? Yeah, I guess so, if we can count. And I just got an email from a wonderful poet still living in Soho, who was uh, Smithson's army buddy in the fall of 1956. There are a few peers still alive. No, I was just trying to get a sense of how old he would be now, because, you know, as, as artists who die young, they're immortalized forever young. I mean, it's a kind of strange thing to think about, you know, because I know Rackstraw quite well, and I'm just imagining what Smithson would be like at 84. Some people think he would have been become a filmmaker. But what about, but what about his land reclamation, like the mine reclamation, you know, like, I mean, I think we've talked about this in passing over the years, because a lot of artists that I know um, of my generation point to that as proof that he would have become environmentalistly driven. But I think you may have, correct me if I'm wrong, you might have pragmatically corrected me and said, 
No, I mean, he was trying to make money. You know, like this was an attempt to get the companies to pay him to make an earthwork, right? That's what I say. Yes. You have to look at people historically. You have to look what else is happening in their life. What else happened in Smithson? His patron, his, what I think of is his, another one of his mothers, the good mother who funded him, exhibited him, traveled with him. I know she didn't sleep with him. She, that was one of the artists she didn't sleep with. Virginia Dwan had just closed her gallery. And what was he making? He wasn't really making much gallery work that was sellable. I mean, there's a limited attraction to triangular bins with rocks in them. So he hoped the mining companies uh, in Colorado and West would fund his redo of depleted mines. The issue here, Greg, which I have discussed or disagreed with in terms of my art historical colleagues, is the identity or the description of what reclamation entails. Exactly. And I think that that term is a moving goalpost in 2023. Wouldn't you agree? Well, it's not moving now because I think people in the last even 20 years think that reclamation is ecological. It's getting into the earth and reclaiming whatever healthful soil they can do. I mean, it's, it's material ecological reclamation. But that is not what it was for him. For him, it was aesthetic reclamation. His proposals, oh, he'd have a little ground cover. But his proposals was to make sculpture, arced, arcing sculpture out of earth on top of the bowls of uh, ravaged mine sites. And people would, you know, come to it the way they do the spiral jetty to see this phenomenal sight. But what he did not include in his plans was, what are they going to do when they get there beyond looking at it? It's not social reclamation either. Yeah. I mean, so I think if I remember correctly, didn't he pitch it to the companies as a beautification? Like that would be their interest in him doing this? Yes. Beautification and also, I mean, some acclaim to the companies for reviving visually their disused mining sites. Yes. Yeah. And, and that's the interesting thing about reclamation, because I think in 2023, it implies this like dimension of corporate responsibility, which I mean, we can pivot and talk about greenwashing and all of that stuff. But to just pivot a little bit here, there's a lot of material in this book that precedes that. And I want to talk about that in terms of the way in which it was cut out and then just why it's important to the understanding of what follows. Maybe we could agree, and I mean, if not, I'm not mistaken the way I wrote this, this is your perspective, that you could arguably say his legacy begins with Earthworks in 1966 at the age 28. And this is still pretty young considering, you know, the average life expectancy. And this is less than 10 years of, of a working life. When he dies at 35, um, this is an extremely short period of time. Maybe, you know, we could look at like other modernists like Seurat. I mean, that had like maybe around the same time. But I think he even had more working time. But why do you feel it's so unnecessary to, as you say, unearth his pre-earth works? Like how do these pieces inform his mature works? Both Thomas Crowe in his essay for the 2004 MOCA, Museum of Contemporary Art Catalog, and myself say that, and others have recognized this, that the early and the late work are linked. And in between was, let me describe this in terms of three phases. The first phase, I discovered he actually had an exhibition in the summer of 56. After he graduated from high school and he was away in the South at his army reserves, so he had, he had nine exhibitions of painting between 56 and 62. Of those, four of them were solo shows. Now, the official chronology that Nancy Holt provided, she was probably uninformed. Uh, okay, so instead of nine and four, there's four and two. 
How could she be uninformed? Weren't they like high school sweethearts? No, no, no. They were not high school sweethearts. Okay. But they knew each other in high school, right? They were sweethearts in middle school. In middle school. Okay. But they didn't know each other in high school and like right after? I think they were estranged in high school. They, they had little to do with each other. I think that is why, well, I don't know. No, no, this is another thing. I mean, she did not want to tell me where she went to high school. Right. She kind of distanced that relationship, right? I think you had told me this before. Yeah, yes. It may have been because Smithson was exploring a homosexual identity. It may have been. Someone who went to high school with them at that time believes that could be so. There's a picture in the book of them at 14. They are standing very close to each other. They are obviously, I mean, I don't think at 14 they were lovers, but, you know, who knows? But they were a couple. Okay, they were not a couple in high school. Both of their high school yearbook pictures are in the book, and it shows his has one word, general. <laughs> Hers, the first one they list, is majorette. Maybe that's why she didn't want me to know that where she went to high school. The second one, get this, is National Honor Society. You're talking about Holt. The, yeah, for Holt. That, that was the, the value then. Majorette first. Her major accomplishment, then National Honor Society. So wait, what was General? Was that in the like Army Reserves, like ROTC or something? No, no. General was like not college prep, just whatever it takes to graduate. Okay, okay so the first phase goes up to about 1964. His art life, you know, obviously he was making art before he graduated from high school, but he started showing in 56. Okay, it's up to about 1964. And then he transitions from expressionistic painter to cerebral sculptor and published essayist. He was writing before, but he didn't seem to seek publication of those essays in the early 60s. All right. So then he was a, a sculptor of interior gallery works uh, until the Spiral Jetty, which was 1970. Okay, 64, 65, he was doing gallery sculptures, and then he catapulted himself via Virginia Dwan, who funded this, the gallerist and the patron. And then, so then the last three years, he was a earth worker, or he, I mean, he was an earth worker before, but he didn't really make anything large until, let's say, 69, he starts doing the pours down the Roman hill, hillside. So then at the end, He's starting to transition out of, well, he's still in earthworks, but he's trying He's trying to transition out of privately funded by patrons, namely Duan, and Doug Christmas, the gallery owner on the West Coast, uh, funded the uh, film for Spiral Jetty. And he was trying to get into more publicly funded or corporate funded visual reclamations of mining sites. But he really couldn't do public art because he wasn't making work that would withstand the elements. You know, they would degrade in the elements. So the, he wasn't making work out of steel or even wood, what material, you know, so he couldn't apply. And besides, his public art, you know, would require a very long process of, of evaluation. He, he needed money. So how do these pieces inform his mature works? Well, first of all, they have references to astrology and alchemy, and they're basically expressive works. They're emotionally expressive. They're autobiographical works. And then, okay, along the way, he makes works, in, even in his sculptures, that can be read, as I read them, as expressive as much as conceptual. I mean, like his work Plunge, with a series of uh, blocks put together that are very tiny at one end of the series, very large at the other. Well, Plunge, what's Plunge call up? Plunge sounds, you know, violent for, you know, you're plunging the toilet or you're plunging into the water. I mean, it sounds dangerous and violent. There's this emotional affiliation with, again, risk. These are the works that are like, they're painted steel, right? Yeah. 
And and are they are they in perspective? So they gradually decrease in scale or in size, like a perspectival recession. Exactly. They either decrease or increase depending on which end you look at them. Right. So these are like Smithson inflected juds in a way. No, they were all, they were all working with geometric forms. But they are serial like minimalism. Can we agree on that? Definitely, definitely. But they're not really serial because serial is identical. Exactly. They're sequential. Judd did not title anything with such emotionally resonant words. Of course. But like this brings the larger question, Suzanne, that like, did he know how to read the wind of art world trends? Well, of course he did. Because it seems like he just was like coasting into the earthworks by reading the room, so to speak. I mean, it makes me think about what Sheldahl said about the Smithson during like when he saw the retrospective in 2005, he said, was Smithson a bullshitter? Yeah, he was. I mean, and like, I, I always like am ambivalent about that description because if you read the writing, it's pretty esoteric in places. Then you kind of like decode it like you're doing and, and analyze it and look at the metaphor and there's definite anchors. So what do you think? I have a whole section on how he deliberately transitioned I'm looking at the shape of time. Okay, George Stupler, Remarks on the History of Things, in that book is a recipe for artistic success. I mean, success by an artist. This is what you do with Smithson. You look at the thing he quotes in the actual original text, and then you look what's around it. You think, whoa, what's on the next page from what he quoted is a statement about basically how to become famous. And Smithson's transition from painter to sculpture was absolutely career-driven. It sounds pretty manufactured as well. In the mid-60s, who was painting? Andy Warhol and the pop artist, but Smithson did not have the mentality, the spirit to do pop art. He tried it, but it's not his spirit. Okay. Well, I mean, he also rejected painting in a similar way that Judd rejected painting. Of course. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, they all, they because where? Because painting had gotten down to ground zero. I mean, it had gotten down to Reinhardt's black fields, or it had gotten completely full of Pollock's splatters. So when you have the two ends being filled, people then moved into sculpture because it was a place that had room for innovation. So they all just say, oh, painting's done. It was done at that point. And as a matter of fact, there's so many people still doing abstract expressionism or early, you think, can't you think of something new? I mean, <laughs> uh, well, I mean, that, that flame does not get extinguished very quickly. If a critic says that, you think, oh, you're just after novelty. No, I'm not after novelty. I'm after an experience that's new to me. Which is interesting because I just read this morning the Bois chapter on the morning of painting in Painting as Model, and he talks about novelty as a driving factor of painting in relationship to the market and capitalism and all that stuff. Well, I think it's a driving factor of all art, all contemporary art. Of course. And so some of the things, you know, this death of painting thing that comes over and over and over again, I mean, you know, like you see every artist like inhabit it in some way or confront it. But you just you just had an interesting painting on view I saw last month. <laughs> mm. Yeah, thank you for that um, shout out. Can we talk more about the relationship of three things here, Suzanne? And I know you, you want to have your reveals. So anyone who's listening, you need to read the book to get the details. Suzanne explicitly instructed me not to reveal anything. But can we just talk broadly about the relationship between his early loss, which we can leave it in that generalized category, his sexuality, which, you know, like, I'm still just so interested that, like, Smithson was showing at 18. I mean, that's so unusual in so many ways, you know, even now. That was a minor show. I mean, I know, but doesn't it speak to his ambition? I mean, like, he just was like chomping at the bits for recognition and for dialogue and all of that stuff. But the three categories are early loss, sexuality, and Christian symbolism. Because there's such a weird mixture, but maybe not, because I know that you have some ideas about that. 
First of all, the Christian symbolism was about, as I've said, dying, death. And that relates to this, this loss that he was born out of, okay, that, but that he, his parents carried with them, and, th and thus he learned, here's a term, he learned melancholy, because he, he didn't directly experience it. All this will be explained. But so the Christian symbolism is either about someone else's bloody death or himself feeling crucified himself feeling crucified because of what he wasn't. This is a little oblique, but we need to let people have the joy of discovery themselves. Well, but let me just say something. Like, you have these reproductions and you reference, like, the Isenheim altarpiece, right? Which, as we know from teaching Intro to Art or the survey class, we know that that's about skin diseases, right? Which is really interesting considering, you know, Smithson's like acne and all that stuff. But also, is it possible? And I mean, I don't want to play psychoanalyst for, you know, Why for, not? <laughs> you know, for someone who's dead, but couldn't the Christian symbolism of the crucifixions, you know, like, you know, the flayed angel, like the open wing angel that you were talking about, and so on and so forth, couldn't that be a way of rehearsing the loss over and over again through his work and somehow processing it? Well, of course, Greg, you're absolutely right. Of course, it's not quite rehearsing it, but it's like trying to process it. Yeah, but he's also intellectualizing it, which is really curious. Like, where's the emotionality in it? I guess the expressiveness of the painting. I mean, what do you think? Well, well now, yes. And then when he transitions in, into a sculptor, he finds an intellectual correlate in entropy. Yeah. And so entropy is like Christ. Everything will degrade. The child in the sandbox. Humpty Dumpty. You know, like those were his two famous examples of it, right? Yes, yes, yes. But you could say you, you caught on to this, to something significant. Obsession. Trying to deal with this trying to resolve it, trying to extricate it from under his skin. Why? Because it was not sufficiently dealt with. Why is he doing this as a, a young adult? This problem came out of a family situation because obviously his parents didn't resolve it. Yeah. So in, the, in this situation, often they put it upon the child to be the carrier of grief. So the parents obviously didn't resolve it because if they resolved it in the family, he wouldn't have to continually obsess about it. Okay. Carter Radcliffe, if you're listening to this, I apologize if I'm not supposed to tell the story, but you told it to me without telling me not to tell anyone. But we talked about this, Suzanne. <laughs> like, remember at the rail meeting, like in 2011, 12, 12 or 13, I believe I met Carter Radcliffe and we were talking about Smithson. Somehow that came up. And he told me this story that I don't know how he knew. It was like maybe gossip or something that Carl Andre, Robert Smithson, and Ruth Kligman had a menage a trois. Ah. I've thought a lot about this and it's come up as I've been reading your book. For me, you know, Ruth Kligman was such a storied person and also the locus of many relationships in the art world, including Jackson Pollock. Well, she was Jackson Pollock's girlfriend at the time of his death. His wife, Lee Krausner, was traveling in Europe because they had difficulties. And he uh, was dating Ruth Kligman. And she was in the car along with her own girlfriend when Pollock had an uh, accident uh, which killed him and the girlfriend, but not Ruth Kligman. So then she told me that thereafter, when she went to Max's Kansas City bar and restaurant, uh, all the guys wanted to uh, assume the position of Jackson Pollock in bed in relation to her. Exactly. I think you may have even told me this, or that was my conjecture. Um, but, but to have it said straight from the source is, is even more remarkable and uncanny, wouldn't you agree? Yes, but I don't think she acknowledged to me actually getting in bed with Smithson. Okay. Because, of course, that's what I wanted to know. What about the essay, Spiral Jetty? What about his obsession with Pollock in it? I, I think Pollock, having died, 
in the summer after Smithson graduated from high school mm. was a another person dead to him. I think Pollock thereby became uh, another or a surrogate or another stand-in for the person, the other person that he had lost. So like a lost doppelganger or something. Or... Yeah, yes, yes, yes. Interesting. That's a really interesting theory. Howard Junker wrote an article on uh, Smithson and Pollock. I gave a lecture at the Pollock-Krasner house in the summer of my uh, PhD graduation, 1998, on Pollock and Smithson's relation to obsession with Pollock. Because you're right, it's significant that he calls up Pollock at the spiral jetty. This raises a lot of interesting questions. Do we owe the world complete transparency to our lives as artists? And how do you draw that line as to what's invasive? There's a lot of writing of personal mythologies here that you've found ways around with Nancy Holt's restructuring and editing of the narrative. And also, I think we talked about how like there were essays that were left out of that second collected writings, right? That uh, you felt were important. No, 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 no. I don't think any were left out of Flams. Okay. I think they didn't know of them. But there were paragraphs excised from the ones they printed. But Greg, this is an important point you're raising as you, an artist. It's not that we want to know your or the artist's private lives. But if you make art with pink penises or a penis that is called vile flower or do exquisitely detailed drawings of highly sexualized men, then I want to know to understand the art. Where's this coming from? It's the art I want to understand. And if I need to understand you to understand the art, well, then, you know, we look to you, your life. But it's not so much directly you. It's like we're art historians. This is like with Jasper Johns. If you put it out there in the art, then it's fair game for viewers to look at and speculate about. You know, what Jasper Johns did is refuse, like in his MoMA retrospective, refuse essayists to refer to him as homosexual. But then there's the issue, the, the difficulty of knowing, I mean, what was Nancy Holt's relation to this? Right. And, and I believe you did indicate at some point that Nancy Holt had told you that she was working a day job. Smithson was not working. And I guess, you know, that's a whole nother question I was wondering about is like, how did he live? How did he pay to live? Was he a trust fund kid or did he have an inheritance? But you told me that he would go out all night, I think, to S&M bondage clubs and come back early in the morning as Nancy was getting up to go to work for her editing job at a scientific publication or something like that. Am I, am I fabricating this or is this, is this true? You're um, smooshing two things together incorrectly. Okay. She told me, oh, Smithson had the metabolism of Hummingbird. He was always active and he would work during the day and he'd go to galleries and then he'd go to Max's Kansas City at night. And I couldn't keep up with him. I went home went to bed, and the next morning he told me what happened. And that quote is in the book. But I am i don't know what happened. I don't know what it is he told her that had happened. I mean, uh, so I, I mean, on the one hand, there's her not only being involved up to a certain point. On the other hand, there's suggestions of his activities, but I don't know how the two mesh. You know, another person I quote in the book said that whenever he was with Smithson, Smithson wanted to go to leather bars. And Nancy said, as I had, oh, when I asked her about this, oh, Smithson was a voyeur. He only went five or six times. I mean, she, but Nancy Hope believed that Smithson was a tourist in those places. Maybe he was. But if you're a tourist, you don't have to go five or six times to see it. So if Smithson was bisexual, how does that change our view of his artwork, in your opinion? It doesn't. Yeah. I mean, this is the essentialist question that gets batted around in 2023 a lot. 
that somehow your identity has to be reflected in the subject matter of your work? Well, let me take that back. I can't say it doesn't. Why is the erect, thick stem with the exploding petals a painting miraculously and astonishingly recently acquired by the Guggenheim Museum titled Vile Flower. What's vile about this flower? Knowing that he had this ambiguous, ambiguous to us, relationship to same-sex sexuality, we might think that this exploding penis is vile because it is a temptation that he does not want to succumb to. Yeah, I mean, he's ambivalent and also maybe self-flagellating. <laughs> I mean, if you want to go back to Christian mythology, right? Yeah, it's really interesting. I mean, like, so let me ask the question of the elephant in the room here, Suzanne, and I don't agree with this, but I have to ask it, is to the people that, as you mentioned, will, will say that you outed Smithson, how would you respond? I'd say, don't blame the messenger. I mean, look, the paintings are there. Right, right. I, what I did out is the paintings. Which have been suppressed. Yes, which has been suppressed. Do you think that's the reason why they've been suppressed? Or what are the reasons? Yes, I think it was also that Smithson wanted to be known as a intellectual, you know, who devised this uh, and promoted this idea of entropy and uh, sites and non-sites and these, these uh, esoteric new forms of art. He did not want to be known as someone who painted exploding penises, which he did, you know, at least uh, twice, and then renamed a painting of another penis that's more like a um, lingam, Dark Sister. Huh? The penis is female? How does one discuss sexuality from a specific time period? Because the language of that time doesn't necessarily reflect our language in our present moment. Right. And I think that you mentioned that you you consulted with David Getze about this. No, no, Jonathan, Jonathan Katz. Jonathan Katz. OK. But, you know, the, the question of like intersex versus transgender, for example, I mean, is just one that comes to mind. And well, th this is a interesting uh, issue for art historians. Right. So how do you address that? When you're talking about historical art, do you use the terms contemporary to you or contemporary to them, you know, I mean, because today we would call such a person queer and then they would call such a person gay. But now we think that gay implies a bifurcation, you're either straight or you're gay, whereas queer suggests more of a spectrum that's, I think, more accurate to people. It's a very amorphous term right now. Well, I mean, it's an interesting question because, like, I know that the discourse on Louise Nevelson is struggling with this right now of, like, younger writers who are saying that she was queer. And people who knew her and did biographies of her said, absolutely not. Like, I've, I've talked to her when she was living, talked to her friends in writing the biography. You know, so, I mean, th these ideas of, like, how do you talk about that? It seems like a quagmire. It isn't really a quagmire because what you have to introduce, and which I did, is the social political context. And in the mid 20th century, post World War II, is known historically by scholars of historical homosexuality, which I've learned by reading them, was a period of really extreme homophobia. Because starting with the U.S. government did not want to hire anyone who might be gay because they thought the communists could blackmail them into giving up uh, U.S. secrets. You know, Newsweek wrote an article, homosexuality, pity or punish? What? So in the context of Louise Nevelson and Smithson and so many others, they needed to be in the closet. Well, what about how this maps on the Roman Catholicism and their position on homosexuality? Well, of course, that's the other thing. 
I mean, for Smithson, that's the quagmire. How can you be a devout Catholic and gay? You can't. That's another reason the flower is vile. So it just seems like a layer upon layer of suppression, repression, and then unearthing. Well, yeah, I see. My feeling is basically sympathy for Smithson. But he felt he had to disguise in order to be successful, to be a success. I was talking to a couple of young guys at an opening the other night. They don't realize the freedoms, the personal freedoms they enjoy, at least in New York City. New York State did not make sex between consenting adults of the same sex legal until 1980. Let me just add to that, that if I'm not mistaken, there are sodomy laws still in effect in North Carolina. They're not enforced, but they're still on the books. Yeah. Oh. I mean, yeah, you want to talk about repression. The secret's in. I have a, I have a picture in the book of the pectum muntum. The Secret Sin, the book that Smithson had from the first edition, first U.S. edition, 1958. He, I mean, he was quite aware of the problem. As I mean, as another book he had, he had titled The Problem of Homosexuality in Modern Society. He was personally aware of this, I think. How does that map onto his library? Because I know that you went through and provided a selected list of the library. Well, the, the library is absolutely illuminating because it shows his concerns by the books he, he bought and uh, and retained. Uh, the library cataloging was made upon his death. I mean, it actually shows two things. It shows what his interests were, not only the problem of homosexuality in modern society, but the early Christian teachings of St. Jerome. He had many books on the early fathers of Catholicism, Christianity, and their sayings, their writings. He had many books on saints. So it shows that he had them. And the other thing it shows is that Nancy Holt was aware of them because she commissioned the catalog and published it or allowed it to be published in a couple of books. In those catalogs where it was published, as a con in contrast to mine, these books were mushed into very vague groups where you wouldn't find them as easily. Is this the one that Alex Obero did for one of the museum monographs? Well, he wrote on the library, but and the library, yeah, the library was in that catalog that he wrote on, which I also have an essay in the 2004 MoCA catalog. I mean, this whole thing brings up the probable difficulty that Nancy Holt must have experienced. I mean, if she did, you know, but she, like Lee Krasner, the widow of Pollock, flourished after his death, after their, their husband's violent deaths. So Nancy Holt made her sun tunnels. She made major public artworks. She grew. What were her attitudes towards having to be kind of the caretaker of his legacy at the same time that she was engaged in her own practice? Well, I think she was ambivalent. She was kind of ambivalent to me because she would tell me what a burden it is. It was, you know, there were constantly people like me asking her for copyright permission. I mean, for my Earthworks book. But she did have artist rights or a contract with artist rights organization to get payment for that. But she wouldn't delegate this to someone else. Well, not, no. It was both a burden, but it was also a source of income and a source of attention as the widow. I mean, as, as the uh, controller so that they did, you know, the uh, floating island piece on the barge at the time when that 2004 show came to the Whitney. I mean, it was, a, it was a great source of attention to her, as well as a great source of burden distracting her from her own work. And she wanted to control what got displayed. The surveys subject to her approval were sanitized. Mm -hmm. In what ways? In that they had very few paintings of relatively innocuous subject matter. Okay, this is an impossible question to answer, but I just have to ask it. So I'm just going to use it as an example. Like I was in Wilmington last week 
uh, for my father's scholarship dinner, and I met with one of his colleagues who is still on faculty. And my father collected over 23,000 fish specimen and created a collection. He was curator of fish. The Museum of Natural History tried to get that collection as soon as my dad finished it. And my dad said to Dave Webster, his colleague, before he died, do not let them get it. You have to promise me, do not let them get it. There are all these things about like, how do you, how do you have someone's legacy? How does a person do that? And of course, Smithson died tragically young and unexpected. And, you know, it wasn't after a long illness or it wasn't after, you know, old age. So I'm just wondering, because it sounds like Holton and Smithson were such different people and they thought so differently. I mean, I think about the East Coast, West Coast video and how they kind of crossed their identities, you know, like, or interchanged their identities, right? And I just wonder... Suzanne, I mean, when you're saying this, like how much possibility, and this is a huge question, how much possibility, and you seem to suggest it, maybe you've already answered this question, but how much possibility did Holt totally misread his intentions if he would have wanted his legacy to go a certain way? Because it seems like a lot of these things that you've told me over the years and that you're telling me now and that you have in your book are more in the self-interest of Holt and Holt's narrative and Holt's perception of Smithson. Like, we don't know. He can't speak for himself. So, of course, this is com- this is a complicated question. I actually am a little confused. I don't know what you mean about in the self-interest of Holt. Well, that she's telling the story she wants to tell. It's not necessarily the story that he wants to tell. Oh. It's not like his perception of who he was as an artist. Maybe he wanted all that stuff to be shown eventually. You have arguments that he very self-consciously, as you say, transitioned from painter to sculptor sculptor to earthwork creator. I don't know if that's a sculpture or not. We could debate that. But um, but you know what I'm saying? Because it's like, you look at Holt's work, she kind of used being the gatekeeper to her own professional advantage in some way. It's unavoidable for her to have done so, right? Right. So what do you think? I mean, do you think this is Holt's? Because you said sanitized too. I mean, so it implies that this was an edit. This was a conscious construction of that personal mythology of Robert Smithson, big capital R, big capital S, rather than Bob Smithson. You know what I mean? I know what you mean, but I think she was carrying out his desires to suppress his early work and his agonies. It may have been the way she managed his legacy may have been contrary to who he really was, but it wasn't contrary to what he wanted. He created a persona of an intellectual. Of course, what I argue in the book is that in the earthworks, basically the three big earthworks in the Great Salt Lake and in Emmen, the Netherlands, and in Amarillo, he was returning. And this is what Tom Crow said also. He's returning to the use of symbols even, I'm saying even alchemical symbols, of the early work. This is one thing that's amazed me. I mean, there's several things about amaze me about my colleagues. How, for instance, just to throw in something, for instance, Smithson would drop in phrases in Latin in his early writings, and nobody translated them. No analyst translated them. Huh? Don't you want to know what, what he's talking about? And then also there has been almost no discussion of the spiral as a mystical symbol and of the broken circle in Netherlands as being a yin-yang symbol or the last work being absolutely an Ouroboros, you know, a snake or dragon biting its tail. Here and there, the people have dropped this in who I cite like Joseph Maschek, uh, early on identified it as such. Art history has not been open or receptive to analyzing work as mystical symbolic. There's been the onslaught of, you know, art as language, as deconstruction, or as, you know, linguistic construction. So this book is also, I'm hoping, opening up a new territory of how to talk about art. 
You can include biography. You can include religion. You can include alchemical symbols as legit. And speaking of which, in that East Coast, West Coast, as I say, Nancy Holt and Smithson were absolutely playing themselves. It appeared that they were playing opposites, but Nancy Holt was the administrator. She played the conceptual intellectual artist in that conversation, that parodic conversation. She was the, actually the household administrator, the keeper of the calendar, the keeper of the financial books, the photographer, the driver. It allowed him to, you know, float with his ideas. Yeah, I mean, just to back up to the spiral for a second, like, didn't it, the symbol come from the idea of a stairway to heaven? I never heard that. In terms of magic and the Kabbalah? Look, I mean, the spiral can go down. He more spoke about it to Dennis Wheeler as descending than ascending. To the, the myth of Atlantis, right? Yeah, or just descending into hell. And you know it goes leftward from the shore. Mm-hmm. Anti-clockwise. Yeah, counter. It's going backward in time to what he called his unicellular beginning. Yeah, again, loss. That's something we'd all like to do sometimes. <laughs> Go back and start over. A regression, yeah. In some ways... Let me just say, maybe in closing, as we're getting to the end of our time together, I'm really shocked that this is the first biography. Why hasn't there been one until now? And I know that you've been working on this for quite a while. Look at all the other biographies that have come out in the last 10 years. There are figures that many are more recent than Smithson. You mean the deaths are more recent? Yeah, exactly. The time span between the death and the biography is shorter. Correct. But I mean, we're talking about, you know, over 40 years. I'm so curious to see how people react to this who have thought they, they knew Smithson, you know? No one is more curious than me. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So can you just speak to like, why hasn't it been? Is it all these issues we've been talking about, about like the poised narrative versus like more of the raw narrative or authentic narrative? I hate that word, but I don't know what other word it's to use here. Well, uh, Harold Rosenberg, I'm reading from a footnote, an endnote. As Harold Rosenberg, the famous art critic of the 40s, 50s, 60s, observed about the position of the artist's widow, quote, she controls the entirety of her dead husband's unsold production, giving her economic power, but also she is the official source of the artist's life story, as well as of his private interpretation of that story. This is Harold Rosenberg in The Art Establishment, which he published in Esquire, January 1, 1965. Well, Nancy Holt personifies that, the artist's widow, who controls both the economic power and the official source of the artist's life story, as well as his private interpretation of that story. Fortunately, the Holt-Smithson Foundation is more progressive in its ideas of what the public needs to know. That's the reason. Nancy Holt died in, in uh, I think, February 2014. This is like, I remember when I published my Earthworks book, and I feel the same way now, you don't want to come out of that tunnel that you're in, <laughs> obsessing. The other aspect is, I'm still running into people who give me new information. Yeah. I just met someone two nights ago who told me that the painter Ed Rocher titled a work 28 Gas Stations in reference to the 14 Stations of the Cross times two. And Ed Rocher is a secret Catholic. What? That is so weird. If I had known that boy, I would have put in because Smithson does a work using the 14 stations of the cross. Yeah. You know, it's so interesting because, you know, like you talk about the occult in this book, 
And then I thought about like that dimension in his record collection, which I know that you don't have in your collection, but he had Black Sabbath records. It's so weird to think about that, you know? Yeah, I couldn't even get into the record yeah. collection. Oh, well, it overlapped my parents' record collection quite a bit. And during the pandemic, I got back into vinyl and like, I got my mom's collection, I got my aunt's collection. And like, that's a whole nother dimension of cultural things that doesn't really get talked about with art. But I, I so appreciate that being part of that. He does quote Dion, <laughs> you know, as an, use a, use a line from a Dion song as an epigraph. Interesting. Where is that? Do you remember? That's, I think, in the Lamentations of a Paroxysmal Artist. Oh, oh, which reminds me. When Nancy Holt speaks about Smithson having a metabolism of a hummingbird, the latent content of that is he had manic energy. I mean, he's kind of classically bipolar, depressive and manic. He produced about 50 paintings in one month. How do I know this? I know this because he wrote his dealer in uh, Rome that he has been turning out paintings to bring to Rome to exhibit. Well, one only needs to watch East Coast, West Coast to get a sense of that monomaniacal like uh, mania that you're talking about. But that's really interesting because it kind of points towards, and here's another teaser trailer for the circumstances under which he died that mania that you're speaking to what you would you agree with that absolutely oh well that's what observers with him at the time described having a kind of manic excitement about making this work greg it's been so marvelous talking with you because you're informed about smithson you have ideas and you you throw them out there and we've i've thoroughly enjoyed this conversation I would second that, Suzanne. I always love talking to you about this because I always learn a lot. And it was such a pleasure talking to you about your book. I hope that everyone reads it and that it gets the dues that it deserves. So thanks for having this conversation. I really enjoyed it. My pleasure. And all I can say is to folks out there, one of my blurbs calls it a monumental achievement. Whoa! <laughs> By a psychoanalytic art historian, Jonathan Feinberg, on the back cover of the book. Whoa! Okay. This has been a University of Minnesota Press production. The book Inside the Spiral, The Passions of Robert Smithson is available from University of Minnesota Press. Thank you for listening. <laughs>